Welcome to our small group series, The Life of Moses. If you're interested in joining a small group, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Join us as we explore Life of Moses, the story of the Lord drawing his people out of slavery and into a relationship with him. Good morning. Um, started a small group last week uh, as part of our Moses series. Uh, some of the people have been in it before. Some of the people were, were new. So kind of to get us going, we went around and shared a bit. And then I showed one of the Bible Project videos on kind of the background of Exodus. And then I just threw out a question, kind of uh, reactions to the message. And uh, one of the gals in my group said, Nick, you just blew up at us. At the last two weeks, you just have blown up. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? And she says, well, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, you talked about giving. And I just walked out of there so guilty and convicted. And then Elliot was on, and that was great. But then Sunday, <laughs> then, then Sunday I showed up, and you got to preach. And I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> and she's in my small group. This is how our small group starts. <laughs> We, we went on and had a, a great discussion. I, I promise you, I will not blow up on you this morning. I'm going to try not to. I won't be as bombastic. I'll be far more palatable. Uh, or at least I'll try. I, um, and, and you can rest secure. The next two weeks, Larry's preaching. So, okay. <laughs> so that should be okay. A number of years ago, I was in Wyoming. And I was uh, fishing. And I actually was fishing with a guide, and he uh, guides hunting as well. And he was telling me about his dogs. And he said, I just have these four dogs, and they are just awesome dogs. And he, he told me that they're terriers, uh, wired-haired terriers. And I had this picture in my mind of a wired-haired terrier as this yappy little thing, you know, the kind of that barks at your you and tries to eat your heels or, or, you know, so small that you could almost put it in your purse. And I, I just was, I, this was making no sense to me. So I said, said I, I want to see your dogs. So he took and showed me his dogs. They are German wired hair terriers. This is what they look like. They are huge. They are not cute. Uh, in fact, they're kind of ugly. <laughs> Because they're all legs, and um, they're just awesome dogs. I mean, they, they are just created and wired to hunt. And uh, he kept them in a pen, and he would let them out every night. And I said, D -d 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 do you ever bring them inside? And he, was, he says, oh, God, no. Um, you can't do that. They're, they're not inside dogs. That's not what they're designed for. Uh, um, they're, they're, they're designed to hunt. And, and he told me, he said, you know, when they hunt, they're not even hunting for you. They're hunting because that's how God made them. I mean, that's when they come alive. Now, you can take a German wide hair terrier and make it a house dog. Uh, maybe, maybe even a decent house dog. I don't know. But if you do, for them, there'll always be something missing. Always be something missing couple truths about life. And these are amazing truths, actually, as I've been thinking about it. First is what I've labeled human agency. It's this notion that God does what God wants to do through 
people. I mean, almost everything God does, he chooses to do through people. And if you go to scriptures, there are very few things that God just, uh, I mean, creation and some acts of judgment, but all the other times he's using people to get his agenda done. And when you think about that, you got to scratch your head because there's, all, there's far more effective and efficient ways <laughs> than using us to get things done. But he chooses us to be his hands and feet. That's just amazing. What's even more amazing is not only human agency, but, but then you put alongside that human freedom. In, in other words, God gives us the ability to choose to follow his agenda or to reject his agenda, to, to follow him or, or, or to, to reject him. Uh, um, he controls the final outcome of things, but he doesn't determine the part we play in them. I mean, we're free. Now, that is amazing because on the one hand, he's using us as his hands and feet, but, but we're free. It's almost like you, you're an author of a play, right? And you have this storyline and you know where the play wants to end up and you've written conversations and scenes and plot twists and all this kind of stuff. And then you get these actors, but the actors are kind of rebellious, you know, they decide that they can improvise anytime they want and they go off on tangents. How well does your play work? Yeah, you would think not at all, but God's story works. Somehow he's so sovereign that even with our tangents and our improvisations and us exercising our freedom, God in his brilliant sovereignty is still able to bring about his purposes. That's amazing. But here's the thing about all that. If we want to live lives of significance and meaning and purpose, then we have to figure out what, what is our part in his story, in his play. What, what is the calling that he has on our lives? Because that's where we find purpose. If we don't do what we were designed to do, what we were created to do, if we're, if we're like those dogs, but we're domesticated instead of hunting, something's missing. Something's missing. We find fulfillment in fulfilling God's calling upon our lives. Well, if that's true, that raises a couple issues. One, uh, how, do you, how do you know what God's calling is on your life? Right? And I think we all wrestle with that. On a general sense, it's a pretty easy question to answer. I mean, generally, we, we, we are to seek his kingdom. That's true for all of us. We are to love God. We are to love people. We, we get that. And, and that's not usually what we wrestle with in terms of calling, although that's probably the biggest part of it that we should wrestle with. But, but it gets more specific than that, doesn't it? How do, how do you know whether God's called you to, to, to work in a church or on the mission field or to be a public school teacher or to be an accountant or to be a lawyer. And by the way, I believe all those things are, 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 are callings. I think it's a calling to be a factory worker or a plumber or a calling to be a homemaker, a calling, you know, where your vocation is part of your calling. But, but how do you know if that's in the fabric of what God's designed you to do? You know, and that's a, a harder question to wrestle with. What, we, what we'd like to happen is that God would walk up behind us and tap us on the shoulder and whisper in our ear, it's this. 
How many of you have had that? Yeah. God doesn't typically operate that way because he has created us free. So we get to decide and have a choice in some of that. And he gives us a lot of latitude what that looks like. So we have to look at the needs around us and we have to look at our passions and we have to look at our, our, our gifting and we have to listen to the input of people who know us best and the calling of the church around us and the community he has put us in. You know, if you, you want to wrestle with it, there's a, a great article written by Tim Keller called Vocation, Discerning Your Calling. And he walks through that whole process. Um, you can just look it up online, Tim Keller, Your Vocation, and it, it shows up pretty quick. It's through the Gospel Coalition. Um, so we wrestle with that question, what is our calling? But he, here's why that's such an important question. You can miss your calling. You can miss it because we're free. We can choose not to do what God has called us to do. And if we miss our calling, we will waste our lives. We might enjoy them for a moment. We might think, oh, this is fun. But in the end, there'll be an emptiness, a hollowness. Uh, a sense that we never fulfilled what God designed us for. This morning, I want to look at Moses because, believe it or not, Moses came pretty close to missing his calling. Uh, almost. Uh, we're going to look at him and some of the excuses he gave God as to why he wasn't uh, the person to lead the Exodus. Let's get a little background. Now, this is chapter 3. Verse 1, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Just so you can picture in your mind, this is, this is a picture of the wilderness. And in scripture, the wilderness is always a setting of exile. And when people are in the wilderness, God's usually working on the interior of their lives. Uh, 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 in a sense, Moses is in the school of hard knocks. He had been educated in the palace of Egypt. Now he's getting educated in, in the wilderness. And those are two very, very different kinds of education. He ends up at a place called Mount Horeb. This is Mount Horeb. Um, it is what we know as Mount Sinai. He's going to come back here. This is where he's going to get the Ten Commandments. We're not absolutely sure where this is. So this is uh, an educated guess uh, of Mount Horeb. So this is the, the setting. Now, I, I want you to picture Moses, right? What comes to your mind? Yeah, Charleston Heston, um, <laughs> right? Chiseled features, hair and beard blowing in the wind. and <laughs> That's not Moses. Not even close. Moses, for, for one thing, Moses at this moment in his life is 80 years old. Okay? He, he, he's not at the, the twilight. He's over the hill. All right. Uh, um, he does not have chiseled features. I mean, it's probably more like this. <laughs> and, and Moses is a man whose heart is crushed and spirit is broken. I mean, quite honestly, he's an utter failure. Here's a guy who had so much potential. He was raised in the, the court of Pharaoh, highly educated, supposed to be this leader. 
And for 40 years, you know what he's been doing? He's been taking care of sheep. And what's really, really upsetting probably to him, they're not even his sheep. I mean, he is a person who has, at this point, made nothing of his life. Nothing at all. And then he has this encounter with this angel in this bush. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. This is a strange sight. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. You you could do a couple messages on this because it's describing for us uh, uh, some of the essence of God. On the one hand, God is personal. He knows Moses' name. But on the other hand, (laughs) he's transcendent, right? In fact, he tells tells Moses when he goes over, uh, um, Moses said, here I am. And God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you were standing is holy ground. I, I mean... Yeah, God's personal and knows Moses' name, but God is this transcendent other. God is mysterious and and dangerous. God is something you you can't easily comprehend or or easily understand. He is quite other. And and, and I think, I mean, wouldn't all of us love to have a firsthand experience of the presence of God in our lives? We, we think that would be such a warm, fuzzy. <laughs> Every time you see it in Scripture, it is not a warm, fuzzy. It is a, a, an oh crap moment in a sense. <laughs> look how Moses, Moses reacts at this. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look. I mean, it would strike you with fear and you would end up typically on the ground. I, I mean, scary. God is in some ways a scary being, all right, just a scary being, so there, there's a lot there, but um, God has some good news uh, um, and some bad news, he says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses just has to think, awesome, God's going to show up, God's coming down, God's going to do something, the slavery is going to end, the oppression is going to end, my people will no longer be exploited. He's going, hallelujah, this is great. That's the good news. Bad news. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh (laughs) to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses goes, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. Evie Hill, most of you have heard of Evie Hill. He, famous, famous preacher, uh, designated as one of the greatest preachers in America. Has numerous famous sermons. Uh, um, one of those sermons is called God's Answer, and it's based on this text. And he goes through the suffering and exploitation that 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 Israel's going through in slavery, and, and he says, "You know what? What?" God has an answer for that. And he, he makes this 
this really interesting comment. He says, Moses going was God coming down. In other words, he's saying, God's answer is you. God's answer to the slavery and the exploitation and the abuse and the injustice in the world and God's answer to the trafficking and all the horrendous oppression in the world, guess what? He's coming down. And the answer is you. Us going is him coming down. Right? Human agency, we are his hands. We are his feet. God's answer to the dilemma in your family is you. God's answer to the dilemma your loved ones are in is you. God's answer to the dilemma the world is in is you. It's us. It's us. But Moses isn't so sure. In fact, what he does uh, in the next number of verses is he gives God some excuses, five of them, explaining to God why, why God's plan's a bad one. And he's, he's not the guy. Uh, God is saying, you're the man, and Moses is saying, no, I'm not. You're mistaken, God. Let's go through the excuses, because I, I, I think there are excuses that we use. The first excuse is Moses says, look, God, I, I, I don't know who you think I am, but I'm a nobody, right? Look at the verse, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go down to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God, have you forgotten? I've been there, done that, and, and, and I failed. Uh, uh, um, I'm not the leader you seem to think I am. I, I my education is out of date. My skills are out of date. All I know how to do is herd sheep. I'm, I'm a failure. My, I'm a murderer, God. Don't you get it? I, I, I'm where I'm supposed to be on the shelf. Because look at who I am. I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. And, and I think sometimes that's the excuse we use to to sideline ourselves, we, we think my sin is too great, uh, my heart is too painted, uh, tainted, my, my inability is too extensive, uh, um, my motives are too suspect, uh, um, because we know the dark side of ourselves and, and we're always convinced that that dark side uh, makes us unusable. Uh, but notice what God's answer to that is. His answer is, look, Moses, I, I will go with you. Let's look at the verse. He says, and God said, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship you, God on this mountain. Um, God is saying, Moses, you don't understand. I'm going to be with you, and that's what matters. It's not, it doesn't matter that you're a somebody. I know you're a nobody. In fact, that's what I've been teaching you all along before you thought you were somebody, right? You thought you could do this. Now you know you can't do it. You feel like you're a nobody, and now you're in prime shape for me to use you. 
You see, we think we got to become somebody, and once we become somebody, then God can use us. But God is not looking for extraordinary people. He's looking for people who will trust an extraordinary God. It's not about who we are. It's about who he is. After all, this is his story. It's not our story. It's dependent on him. It's not dependent on us. Right? The issue... <laughs> it's like the burning bush. What's important, the bush or the fire? Well, the fire. I mean, the fire can use any bush, any, any tumbleweed will do. <laughs> what, what matters is if you're a scrub oak is that you got the fire. And if you got the fire, well, that's something awesome. Because it's the fire that matters. Now, now God says something interesting. He says, and Moses, I'm going to give you a sign that I'm the one doing it. And here's the sign, right? Did you see that? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, oh, oh, when you're about to, sorry about that, people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. When does that happen? Out of the, at the end of the story almost, right? They're already out of Egypt. They're through the Red Sea. They're at, He's saying, here's the sign. When you look back on your life, you can see my fingerprints. And you're going, oh, great. I don't want to see them after the fact. I want to see them before the fact. But God says, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. The sign is that if you fulfill my calling, when you get, get at the end of life, you'll be able to turn around and say, oh, yeah, God was there. I didn't even know it at the moment. But he was there. I'll be with you. Second excuse. First is kind of who am I? I'm a nobody. The second is, God, well, who are you? Right? Let's look at verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, honestly, that's kind of a stupid question, right? Because everybody knows his name is Yahweh, which is the answer he's going to give in a second. We think, we come to this passage, oh, this is the first time the name of God is revealed, it's Yahweh. No, it's used in Genesis multiple times. Everybody refers to, to God as Yahweh. And the problem is when we read name, we think a name is a symbol or a representative of a person. For them, name wasn't a symbol of the person. It was a descriptor of a person's character. So, so in the scriptures, when you read, uh, say, the name Jacob, Jacob's name means deceiver. And that's a descriptive of his character. So, so what Moses is saying... God, tell me the kind of God you are. Because quite honestly, we've got some questions here. You see, before this, when he says, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Ike, and Jacob, that, that's when God came and delivered them. But he was just a tribal deity, right? They were small stuff. And yeah, he's a big deal, but it's only a big deal for their tribe. But now the situation is different. My, your people are in Egypt, and they're in slavery, and Egypt is not a tribe. It's a nation, and it's the most powerful nation in the world. And, and, and your people are enslaved. They have no power at all. 
And for 400 years, they've been crying out for you, and you really haven't shown up. And the conclusion is you're just not big enough and powerful enough and supreme enough. You're not the kind of God that can deliver. I mean, after all, Egypt has a pantheon of gods. And they just seem so much powerful than you. Not only that, Pharaoh, he says he's a god. And so far, he's making good on that claim. He's the god of death to us. See, and that that question is a thread through this whole Moses Exodus story. You'll see it come up in the plagues next week. Who really is God? Who really is supreme? So Moses saying, God, tell me when they say what kind of God you are, what's the name? What kind of God are you? The answer, I am the one present. I am Yahweh. Let's look at the text. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, what is going on here is a play on words. Uh, I am, what we say as Yahweh, is really the verb to be in Hebrew. And it's designated as the name of God. It's so revered in Jewish culture that they took away the vowels so we don't really know, and they don't pronounce it, so uh, there's vowel markings and those aren't put in here because we don't really know how this word uh, is to be pronounced because they don't say it out of respect for the name of God. And even in your Bibles, when you see Yahweh, you'll see the word Lord in all caps. And it's a translation in the Greek text that they translate it as the Lord or Adonai. And every time you see Lord in all caps, you know that's really in the Hebrew Yahweh, the unpronounceable one. But it's a play on the word to be or is. And he's saying, I am the one who is. I am the one who was who is and will be. I'm the essence of the very nature of being itself. In a sense, he's saying, I am the one who is present and I am the one who is active. I I mean, we we don't really know how to to say it and describe it, so we, we say sometimes some funny things. You know, God is the ground of all being, or God is the essence of all existence, or, or God is the source of everything. In that sense, what is going on here, it's saying nothing is if God is not. And his point is I'm the one who is present. I'm the one who is active, and I am the one who will redeem. Now, that's huge. Because we live in a world where oftentimes we feel that God is absent, and the reality is he's not. It's just that our perspective is limited. And the truth is, it's just like he said to Moses before, give it time. And you'll see my presence manifest itself. 
We think that the presence of God should exempt us from the hardness of life, but the truth is, is that God's love and God's presence doesn't exempt us from anything. It just sustains us in all things. And because of that, there'll come those moments, because we only see a slice, right, of the now, rather than the perspective of what was and what will be. But the time will come when we can gain that perspective. And when we gain that perspective, we'll see the hand of God at work. I'm Yahweh. I am the one who is, the one who is present, the one who was, who is, and will be. It's really interesting. Um, in verses 16 through the end of the chapter, we don't have it up here. But, but what God... What, what God does is he tells Moses to gather the elders of the people and tell them exactly what God's going to do, the wonders he's going to work, uh, the power he's going to exhibit, uh, the reality that he's going to take them out of Egypt and in the process actually plunder the Egyptians. He kind of lays out how his presence is going to manifest himself. itself. So Moses It's not a matter of who you are. It's a matter of who I am, and I am the one who is present. Moses gives another excuse. He says, look, Lord, (laughs) they're not going to believe me. And actually, you know, Moses has a point, right? Here's this old man in his 80s showing up in the court of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most uh, powerful man in the world, uh, hard-hearted and ruthless. I, can you picture Moses walking to the royal court? He's got his shepherd garb on. He's got this wrinkled face. He, he, he's dirty. He's poor. He's got a staff in hand. And he walks up to Pharaoh and he says, by the way, God says you're supposed to let all your slaves go. And Pharaoh goes, right. What, you been smoking out there? He's not going to believe me. (laughs) And the Israelites were saying, oh, great, God's coming. Moses is here. Wait a second, God. (laughs) This really is your plan? And uh, um, notice his answer. Well, let's look at it. Moses said, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear you? You know, it's not going to happen. Well, what's his answer? Not your problem. So wait, wait a second. Verse two, uh, that's not in the text. Well, it's implied. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand a staff? And he throws it down, it becomes a snake. And in a sense, what's going on is God is saying, look, your responsibility is to speak the truth. Your responsibility is to be faithful. Your responsibility is to do what I tell you to do and say what I tell you to say. That's your responsibility. My responsibility is the response, right? And I'll take care of that. And all these signs are God's way of taking care of it. He, he says, Moses, take your staff, you know, your sheep stick, the one you poke the animals with to keep them alive, and you throw it on the ground, and what happens? Uh, what's straight becomes crooked. It, it turns into a snake. And what does Moses do? He turns his knees to the breeze, man. He, he's out of there. <laughs> He runs. And then what does God do? He says, Moses, pick up the snake. And Moses says, no way. You made it. You pick it up. (laughs) 
a sign. And then God says, stick your hand in your cloak. And he pulls it out. And he's got leprosy. And Moses knows what leprosy does. It, it, it shrivels your, di- uh, your digits. It, it makes your nose fall off. It's the people who are in the village who, who cry out, unclean, unclean. This, this is a death sentence. And God says, put it back in. And it comes out fine. And God is saying, look, I'll take care of their response. I can do amazing things. And if they don't listen with these, I'll make the Nile turn to blood. You know, folks, we don't have to manipulate or force people into belief. Belief is God's area. Our responsibility is simply to proclaim the truth. I was bothered when I first became a Christian, you know, the altar call was a big deal. And I just hated altar calls because I thought they were inherently manipulative and I thought they were a denial of our belief in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in a sense, in most of the altar calls, this is not true of all of them, in most of the altar calls, they were designed to try to manipulate you into response. Right? We're going to sing 55 verses of Just As I Am, and we're going to lower the lights, and I'm going to tell you, I know God's saying this to you and that to you, and you're doing this, and then I'm going to have you bow your heads, and if God's speaking to you, raise your hand, and then once you raise your hand, he has everybody stand up, and he says, well, now if you raise your hand, you've got to come forward. And I just ticked me off. Why do we have to manipulate people if we believe that the Holy Spirit is real and capable of convicting people? Let's leave the lights on. Let's leave the heads up. Let's ask people to just listen to the Spirit in them and turn over the response to God. You know, he doesn't need low lights and lots of verses and manipulative behavior to get people to believe. That's his, his area. Moses says, you know, they're not going to listen to me. Um, God says, not your problem. Then Moses says, well, Lord, but the other problem is I'm, I'm just not gifted. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And, and literally it says I'm, I'm thick of speech and thick of tongue. And that is not true. There are other scriptures that seem to indicate Moses was quite eloquent, right? So he, he, he's reaching. Uh, uh, um, and, and God says, Moses, your ability and your giftedness is, is not the issue. Look at what he says. I'm the one who made you. And if I'm the one who made you, don't you think I gave you the resources you're going to need to accomplish what I've called you to? Right? Let's look at the verse. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouth? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or or makes them blind? 
Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. You know, I think one of the things we have to do in life is come to an awareness of our own limits and our own gifting and face the fact, you know, that in lots of ways we, we never will be exactly what we want to be. I will never uh, play football like Von Miller. I, um, I will never sing like Bruce Springsteen. Uh, um, there's a lot of things that I don't just, I just don't have the abilities to do. Um, that's okay. Uh, um, I have to come on the one hand to understand the limits of my ability, but on the other hand, come to the understanding that I have everything I need. I am everything God wants me to be. Um, and where that gets in trouble for us is we live in this world of comparison. You know, if you're a preacher, you, you start thinking, well, I got to preach like Tim Keller, or I got to preach like Matt Chandler, or I got to, you know, it used to be, I got to preach like uh, Charles Swindoll. At some point, you just got to face the fact that that's not how God gifted you. That's not how God wired you. That's not what God wants of you. That's not uh, even necessary for you to fulfill the calling that he has on your life. So quit comparing. You're designed the way God wants you to be designed to fulfill your part in his story. And when you're unhappy with that, it's because you're set, setting uh, uh, standards and comparing to standards that you have no business of setting or comparing to. Um, you know, one, one of the things that has made the partnership that Larry and I have working together at Waterstone for over 20 years is we really don't compete with each other. I mean, if you know both of us, we are really different. Uh, um, very, very different people. And, and uh, through the course of the, the, the ministry together, we've come to really appreciate those differences. And, and quite honestly, I don't want to be more like Larry, right? And quite honestly, Larry doesn't want to be more like me. <laughs> but us together is, is not a bad deal. So we don't have to compete and we don't have to compare. We just have to figure out how, how has God wired me and embrace that and be the best me we can be really bad grammar, sorry about that. But you get the point. Finally, uh, uh, Moses gets to the heart of the issue, right? I don't want to. Right? Uh, uh, verse 13, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> um, right? I remember the story between a farmer and a neighbor. The farmer goes to his neighbor and asks him if he can borrow a rope, and the neighbor says, no, I'm using my rope to tie up my milk. And the farmer says, you can't use a rope to tie up milk. And the neighbor says, I know, but when you don't want to do something, one reason is as good as another. <laughs> Moses is kind of caught. And what's really interesting, God gets a little ticked, right? Uh, is it? His answer, 
and I skipped ahead, his answer is, I'm going to give you help, but notice how, how it flows out. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about, this, this, God is incredibly gracious. He, he, he's angry at Moses, but he says, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm not going to let you say no. And he says, uh, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. And, and, and two things going on here. One, obedience is easier together. And we so individualize our faith and we so individualize our relationship with Jesus and we keep everything private that most of the time we struggle alone. And God is saying to Moses here, okay, I get it. You don't want to do this, but I'm not going to let you struggle alone. I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to bring somebody alongside and you'll do it together. And sometimes obedience together is far easier than obedience alone. The second thing that is really interesting to me is Moses, in, and you see this in the rest of the chapter, obeys. He, he does what God's called him to do, to do. And here's the point. Reluctant obedience is better than disobedience. Now, a lot of times we think, well, if my heart isn't in it, I'm not going to do it. If I can't do it with joy, I'm not going to do it. That's a really, sorry, stupid way to think. I mean, yeah, God would love for your heart to be in it and you to be filled with joy, but doggone it, just do what he says. That's, I have five kids. Do you think I was really all that concerned about whether they wanted to do what I asked them to do? No, I could care less. Most of the time, I just wanted them to do it. And if I got that, I was pretty happy. And here's the thing. Moses' reluctant obedience was the best decision he ever made in his life. Because if he had said no, we'd never have heard of him, and God would have found somebody else. So folks, God's answer is you. And no excuses exempt you from his call. Let's pray. Father, uh, uh, um, we take for granted what it means sometimes to be your hands and feet. Help us to, to relish in that because in fulfilling your call, we find huge purpose and satisfaction. Help us obey you even when we don't want to. We pray in Christ's name, amen. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.